Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1908, and our book is Helen Keller's The World I Live In, which is not the one about her childhood. It's an account of how she perceives the world using three senses, touch, taste, and smell. I'm discussing the book with Emiliana Godin. Uh, we'll have a more complete bio for her in the show notes because she's doing so much in so many fields. But briefly, she has a PhD in literature. She produced a play called The Star of Happiness about Helen Keller's vaudeville years, uh, another on the invention of Braille. She does acting, uh, and her first book is out now. It's called Their Plant Eyes, Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, and it's excellent. Uh, then I also have to tell you that we had some problems with the audio software while we were recording. There are a few places where the conversation might not sound as smooth as usual. Sorry about that, but here it is. I I wasn't aware of this book before you suggested it. Oh, good. And <laughs> I loved it. I just loved it. Um, that makes me so happy. That- <laughs> Like you write in your book about um, how much focus there is on Helen Keller's childhood and the kind of mm-hmm. the sense of her almost being like converted to civilization by um, her teacher teaching her this, you know, this finger spelling for water and yes. all of those things. And then there's often kind of, it's like, oh yeah. And then she went to college and, um, and then did a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of the end of the story. Yes. I just found this book so philosophically rich. And I think that she basically described the social model of disability like 80 years before mm-hmm. it was called that. Just on so many levels, I I know people say she's so smart, but I was like, like the quality of her intelligence was just stunning to me in this book. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I love it so much. Um, so I'm glad you did too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you actually wrote a, a play somewhat based on her. Yes. Her life. Yeah. I, I wrote a play. Um, my partner always says like, is this going to be the long story? So this is going to be slightly the the long story. So I, you know, I had, (laughs) I had, I had obviously known about Helen Keller, you know, it's, it's hard not to. um, And I I was kind of right in the middle of my dissertation that was like smack dab in the middle of the 17th, 18th century. And I heard about this book called the radical lives of Helen Keller. That's about her, her extreme, um, I would say leftist politics. I mean, she was a socialist and very politically minded. Um, so I, at that time, it was kind of just before Kindle came into existence. So I spent the time like scanning the book and, and it was very interesting, right? I mean, her politics are, are, are a major part of who she was for sure. Um, but there was like this dismissive little line that was, you know, she spent four years performing on vaudeville from, from 1920 to 24. And I was like, what vaudeville? I'm sorry. Like, how did I not know this before? You know? And so, um, it really did just send me down the rabbit hole of, trying to understand on the one hand um, why I had never heard this before and, and why even in this book that, you know, where she, she was, you know, sort of her, her leftist tendencies was celebrated, the, the vaudeville stint was a little bit 
I mean, it was quite dismissed, you know, in, in this one sentence. And um, and on the other hand, what that might have been like for her, you know, to, to be performing in vaudeville. So that's really where the whole idea of the play came up. Um, also, I was kind of moonlighting while I was doing my dissertation. I was kind of moonlighting, um, like doing performance art and kind of Lower East Side black box theaters and such. So at that moment, yeah, well, at that moment, it was kind of like write a book or do a play, you know, it was like, it was kind of a no brainer when you're knee deep in a dissertation, you know, for, (laughs) for way too long, I should say that. Um, So, so yeah, so it was, yeah, a no brainer to, to, to write a play and to almost kind of um, perform the ideas that I thought were were brought about by this idea of, of of her performing in vaudeville, and I should say that she very much used her politics in in her vaudeville performing, and um, like during the Q and A, uh, many of the questions were were quite political, and um, so it, it was really fun because I could use her own words and her own answers to those questions, as well as her words in the world I live in and other places, to kind of give voice to. To, to my version of, you know, Helen Keller and vaudeville. Yeah, I, I thought that, so in, in your book, you describe that there's kind of two angles of how her vaudeville stint is political. One of them is that she knows that she has money from her family, like an allowance, um, but her teacher and companion, Anne Sullivan, um, if Helen were to die she would not then have that money. Yeah. And, and it was even stranger than that. It wasn't even her family money. It was, it was like, I think, you know, people kind of set up trusts for her, um, organizations. And um, like, I think Carnegie set up a, a, a trust for her and stuff. So yeah. So it was even kind of stranger than that. It was, it was, yeah, not even, not even family money as, as far as I can tell, like I could be, just her, her labor consciousness, I think, is very tied to the things that she's describing in this book. Yes. And I think we're going to get more close to, to her book. And But I want to spend another oh minute goodness. in your book because I thought that uh, the fact that the lecture circuit that she was on that was a sort of more supposedly highbrow thing was um, mm-hmm. – that she would have to be in a new city every night, basically. She'd have no chance to rest. She would, you know, sometimes be like bilked out of her speaking fee and all of these things. And, but the workers organization around vaudeville was actually better. Um, And so even though she, Mm -hmm. you know, had her college degree, she could go and speak about socialism under the guise of being the deaf blind girl or I guess woman she's pretty old by that I mean a full adult by then yeah yeah she's a full-fledged adult right she's she's 40 years old um and uh and you're absolutely right I mean she doesn't write about this in the world I live in because she's quite she's quite young still um the world I live in was kind of some essays that were written like in 1904 but then I think it was collected and added to in in 1908 from what I can tell um and her vaudeville years started in like 1920 and then there's another book called midstream um 
what she calls her middle years. And, and in that one is where she describes her, her, her vaudeville days and kind of gets to talk about what it meant and also talk about exactly what, what you're referring to, which is like, why did she go into vaudeville and how, you know, her, her, her friends, her acquaintances kind of really gave her a hard time for doing this lowbrow entertainment. And, um, and then also, of course, people were saying, oh, she's being exploited. She's being exploited, which is something that is very near and dear to my heart of like accusations of exploitation seem to me really connected with um, ideas that a, a disabled person can't think for themselves, right? And just like you said, she was she was 40 years old and she was very much aware of the pressures around her existence. And and yes, her her thought was, well, my goodness, if something happens to me, my teacher, Anne Sullivan, will be left absolutely destitute, you know, because there there was nothing yeah. that was going to be there, nothing could be saved. So, and you're absolutely right to like make that connection with her socialist writings about um, concerns about the workers and all of that sort of thing. So it was, I think you're right that it's so much bigger than just, oh, I want to make a, a bunch of money and like, this is, you know, the easiest way to do it. I mean, I think she really felt like. It's definitely a very organized and thoughtful strategic thing that she's doing. And I think you yes. can see the seeds of it in this book. Mm-hmm. And then one more thing to just position this book in, in the timeline of her life is her father was a captain in the Confederate army. And then her, that's, so it's her father. And then her mother's father was a general in the Confederate army, mm-hmm. which I think places us in time and in uh, American history in a way yes. to show just how like what does it mean to be uh, a young woman in 1908 when this is published and then how far does she go within herself from you know what did the civil war mean to her family it's like well the civil war was pretty bad for her family it was in the end. pretty bad for her family yeah oh, <laughs> nice observation point. yeah because they were slave owners but then she is like giving money to the NAACP she's part of one of like, the founders actually one of well, the founders of the NAACP and um the yeah. ACLU and she is like the IWW, like she is in every leftist organization. She is organizing. She's a, you know, trying to get uh, universal suffrage, like all of these things. And like many of these people, like when we look back at their politics from our current position, the fact that she's okay with eugenics in the case of mental disability, but Mm. also is writing this book about having three senses, like three operational senses. Yeah, you can see how far she got just by thinking from where she was raised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was because she was born in 1880 in Tuscumbia, Alabama, right? And you're absolutely right that, you know, sort of on on a plantation that obviously is not what it had been in its (laughs) its awful glory days of, you know, Civil War. Yeah. yeah. And you can see so many ways that she could have not kind of taken that challenge. Hmm. That she, there's so many ways she could have not been that person. Yeah. It seems overwhelmingly likely that she wouldn't have been that person, in fact. And then you can read this book and see, like, oh, that's how you became this person. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And and it's there's something sort of rebellious in her, which you definitely can see in this book. I mean, it's just a few years after the story of my life, but it has a completely different tone. And I think that's what really spoke to me when I first read it. I mean, from, from the very beginning, from the, the preface. The introduction, she says, people don't want to hear about my thoughts on politics. They don't want to hear about, you know, any of the results of all of my education, yes. all of my uh, experiences of life. They just want to know about this one thing, which is how do my senses work? Yeah. And even, even more specifically, I think she, she, um, you know, she's basically saying, I, I want to write about the, you know, the, the troubles of the world, right? She even says like the tariff, the conservation of our natural resources and the conflicts which revolve about the name of Dreyfus. So basically, you know, politics and racism and world concerns, right? So um, she, and she basically says something like, you know, the editors are so kind, you know, that they are, they're no doubt right in thinking that nothing I have to say about the affairs of the universe would be interesting. But she also says, until they give, give me opportunity to write about matters that are not me, I love that, like not me, yes. then the world will go on uninstructed and unreformed. <laughs> so from the very beginning, she's like, okay, here I go. I'm going to have to write about myself again, um, even if she is doing it in a slightly different way. But she's, she's definitely letting us know this would not be the first book that she would be writing. You know, she's like, people are very curious. I get that. But I, I, I don't need to write about me all the time, but that's the only thing that anybody wants to hear from me. So it, it's such a different tone than the story of my life, which is, of course, her, her first book. And, um, and, and then it kind of follows throughout the book where, and I just was kind of revisiting this, that uh, like she was criticized even from the story of my life about people saying, oh, well, she's writing about the, you know, what things look like. And she's writing about things that she can't even know. I think I, I had the quote that it's like, oh, some, some critic in the nation said, everything she knows is hearsay. Um, so that's kind of what animates, I think, the world I live in is her um, rebelling against the critics about them basically saying she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's just getting things secondhand. And so you see that almost in every chapter where she says, well, the critics say, you know, this and that. And, um, and so I, yeah, I guess that's kind of situating this book in relationship to those critics, I think is, is important. Yeah. It, she talks about like men of science saying yeah. that she must live in a dream all the time and she must live in this kind of empty, um, kind of woo woo world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that, and in fact, so I was thinking about that. It, like she's saying something very, very precise philosophically, and I was thinking about that. Um, it's originally um, from India, but I think that it's like a thought experiment parable type thing where blind men, I, I mean, people, they say men, yeah. um, are all like they encounter an elephant and they each can touch a different part of the elephant and they each, you know, maybe they argue about what is the nature of the elephant. But the assumption is that a blind person's experience of the elephant is incomplete, whereas a sighted person would have a more complete understanding of the elephant from the get-go. But yeah. nobody senses 
can see, like you can't see the other side of the elephant from where you're standing. Yes. You always are getting an incomplete set of information about the elephant. And you are ultimately gathering information and then you're interacting with your idea of the elephant no matter what. And your information is always going to be incomplete if it's based on sensory data. But it's like everyone's information is incomplete. And if the information is coming from five senses, then it's assumed to be complete enough to result in Mm. adequate knowledge. Um, And obviously the whole field of epistemology is like, you know, how can we mess with that? But um, Mm. that's the argument she's setting out is even if I'm only using three senses instead of five, I have adequate information to form correct appraisals of reality as much as anyone does. And I am a person in the world. And the degree to which I'm not encountered as a person in the world is because people are used to considering, you know, telescopes or microscopes as that there's no shame in using a telescope to see stars better. Mm -hmm. But whatever um, she might need to extend her senses or like accommodations that she might need are considered like they, they take away some of her personhood in the eyes of others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, there's, there's so much there. I mean, one thing is that I think that whole Indian parable I think it it is a metaphor, right? I mean, isn't it meant to like explain exactly what you're talking about, which is like the limitations of human senses. I mean, we don't have to look very far, right? We can't see very much of the the color spectrum at all, right? I mean, there are animals that can see, you know, into the infrared and into the ultraviolet. And, you know, so, I mean, it's like, it's convention, right? And I think that's much of what she's kind of arguing against is is the realization that like what we think of as I think you said adequate is really just what typical human senses sense and it's extremely limited and I think that we are aware of it to some extent that we only perceive a very small portion of like the um the the potential sensory world, I guess it is. And, and you're right to bring in the idea of telescopes and microscopes as, as prosthetics of, of sight. You know, I kind of even talk about that in my book a little bit as well. And, um, and that realization that our senses are all limited are exactly what kind of animate that parable of the, the blind men, right? It's just unfortunate that it always seems to be blindness that seems so such a useful metaphor for limitations that like the metaphor gets kind of confused with the actual people who are blind. And that's when we start to have, you know, um, assumptions about knowledge being conveyed only through the eyes. And, and of course, that's what in the world I live in is certainly arguing against. And I think quite, um, quite, quite persuasively, you know, and, it's amazing, like to to what extent she needs to, um, I don't know, give proof of how how um, expansive are her impressions of the world. You know, I mean, there's like one moment where she she talks about 
you know, the feeling of a rooster crowing on her lap, you know, and, and, and what that feels like and stuff. And, and so there has to be really, um, it feels like she, she feels like she needs to be very precise about how she came about this information because of those critics that she's kind of arguing against, you know. And um, I think you're right that in the end it is about her using her imagination, putting thoughts together that gives complete pictures and not just the sensations themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things I, I just want to give listeners an example of some of the stuff that she describes her ability to understand concepts that, um, that she can kind of triangulate from other concepts and from her own experience concepts that people expect her not to understand, like the horizon. And she says, I know what parallel lines are. I understand the idea of convergence of parallel lines at a distance being an optical illusion because I understand how senses can be, you know, they, they can trick you sometimes. Like that's a, that's a, a thing that I understand from my own experience mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then I understand the feeling of a horizon because I know what it's like to understand something. And then it isn't exactly what she says, but it, she, I wish I had exact notes on this one. Cause I thought it was so interesting that she's like, I know what it's like, to know something and then to know that there's something true beyond it that I don't yet know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she also makes some analogies between smell and the idea of the horizon as well. The, the idea of, of something being just sort of just beyond conscious reach. And I think that's where it kind of, yeah, slips into the metaphorical again, you know, that the, that our idea of the horizon is as meaningful, or not, I shouldn't even say as meaningful, but our, our idea of the horizon of being at the limits of perception are related to or analogous to um, our limits of understanding generally. And, and she seems to be doing that all, almost on every page, right, of kind of explaining how our perceptions are nothing without um our knowledge and our ability to, to put information together and to, to be thoughtful and add imagination and, and the thoughts of others. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's like she makes such a complete case for the idea that most of what any of us are ever interacting with is something that we're partly imagining and is partly informed by metaphor. And only very slightly informed by your senses, even though the senses, you know, she also describes like, you know, sensory experiences just very beautifully. Yeah. I mean, I, her, her chapter on smell is something that has like influenced me in, incredibly. Right. So she has a chapter called smell the fallen angel. And, uh, and I love this chapter. Right? I've put up, up online it's kind of the animating force behind my my magazine called aromatica poetica and i i find her descriptions of smell and what she gets from smell to be absolutely um fascinating and i think she she kind of comes up against our limitations in language paid any paid hardly any attention to smell whatsoever 
um, intellectually, yeah. right? That we don't have the language to describe smells. And so we think that therefore, you know, smell is kind of a lesser sense, you know? So it, it's something that I, I feel very strongly about because so much say in, in literature, right, in novels, is dedicated to to describing things that have already been described in literature, you know, and I think sometimes that we think that because we do it all the time, i.e. seeing, i.e. writing about seeing and things that are seen, that that's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that because we write about it all the time, then that means it's the most important sense and the one most lend, lending itself to language when it's simply convention, right, that that's what we have put the most attention on in terms of our, our literature. And uh, so I love that chapter, uh, Smell the Fallen Angel, because her descriptions of smell and how she smells and, and the, the discrimination is, is so beautiful. And it's, it's something that is like just so untapped in our Western literature, I think. Yeah, I think that the amount that she is able to do outside of convention it almost doesn't feel like it, it feels like a book outside of time in a way, like in some ways there are conventions of her speech, uh, especially in the introduction, I think where it felt like it was um, of a particular time. And she was obviously speaking to a literary public that was, you know, of 1908 mm. or in that, that uh, sort of set of years. And, um, and then in things like the smell chapter, it just felt like, she had to invent so much of what she's doing. Mm-hmm. If somebody asked me to make an account of what I'm aware of based on my senses and how I use metaphor to expand my understanding into a full enough picture of the world to live in, um, I don't think I could do that. I don't, I don't think it's a task that many people have tried to do. I don't think that there's a, um, a tradition of doing that. Mm. And the fact that she was able to put this together, it, clearly it's because she's been asked these questions over and over and she's had to do a lot of thinking mm. and she is in community with other people um, who've also presumably been asked these questions and have to think about them through like the Perkins school of the blind. And, you know, right. there are institutions that she obviously has community around these issues, um, I still just felt stunned by how both beautifully and intellectually she was approaching these questions. Yeah, me too. And, and it, 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 it saddens me that, um, that she did feel like she had to prove herself. I think on the one hand, I really appreciate that kind of rebellion against her critics, these kind of unknown people that discount what she knows. Um, But on the other hand, it is unfortunate that she had to spend so much time and energy defending her, her perceptions, as opposed to just giving voice to them like she does in, in many moments in the world I live in, you know, because they are, it is so beautiful and it does, it feels like there's just so much, yeah, untapped territory there. Um, I, I don't know if this yeah. feels unrelated, but I, I just saw there's kind of a blind writers group that I'm a part of. And I just briefly saw that a young writer asked, you know, well, how am I going to write a novel if I, you know, I've never seen before, how am I going to write a novel and express 
the visible world. And it's kind of like, I'm kind of formulating how to respond to this, or even if I should, but I think if we would stop worrying about, you know, the visible world all the time and start to give waste to these other senses, I mean, think how rich our whole literary tradition could be, right? If, if we Absolutely. opened up our, our mind to perceiving in different ways. And, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was thinking about what you wrote about, well, okay, two things that I want to put side by side. One of them is how you can see her frustration and you can see the tension in her tone when she's addressing these critics and the feeling of dehumanization that she's facing as she's writing these mm-hmm. things. Um, and you can see the line between that and her political thinking and work. Um, at least this is, this is my sense yeah. that there's a clear line of development between this frustration when she's you know in her 20s to her real understanding of how the world is working pretty much against her, but also against everyone else mm. or almost everyone else. And that, she, and that she can sort of use her life to improve those situations. Yeah. Um, but then beside that, I want to put the thing that you wrote about um, blind face <laughs> where actors, um, actors will try to look blind if they are not. Yeah but their understanding of what that means is sort of empty. Mm. Um, where what you were saying is that actually blind actors um, are acting, that they're, they're, you know, that they can act as characters because there's just a lot going on in people's faces uh, and in responses to other people, whether or not they're blind. Yeah. I mean, I've, I have so much to say about this, but I, I'll start by saying that um, the, the Helen Keller in vaudeville chapter kind of opens up into a conversation about um, acting and the need for authenticity and the need for blind actors to actually be, you know, creating the roles of blind people because, you know, basically cited actors win Academy Awards like all the time for, you know, playing disabled people and specifically blind people and the, very, very persuasively frustrating. Yeah. Like, and it's yeah. like, what are, you know, the, the very idea of, of a blind actor sort of just doesn't compute, you know, I mean, I think I talk about in that chapter of how I did a television commercial and people on the, on the commercial, like where it was put up on, on the social media or whatever, they were like, uh, you know, they, they, this is not a real blind person. Like they, this is an actor. They need real blind people, you know, and it's, it's, it's just amazing. Cause I mean, just the, like I said, the very idea of, of a, of a blind actor doesn't compute in, in many people's minds. And, um, of course the, the problem there is that, uh, you know, what is a blind actor to do? Are they supposed to put on sighted face? You know, how, how would the public feel about that? Right. And, um, but I mean, I'm, I'm being tongue in cheek, of course, but the, you know, there, there are blind actors and they would like to work. And if we're not given the blind roles, like, you know, how, how are we going to get into that, that world at all? You know, so that need for authenticity is something that I, I think is related to exactly how you say related to the need to work. You know, this isn't just for fun. I mean, 
I think maybe people might might think that I'm being frivolous in talking about an acting job, but an acting job is not all that different from other forms of work. And I think you brought this up earlier about, um, you know, that she was an entertainer in vaudeville, but she was doing it for very practical reasons and feeling like there was no other way for her to make money. Yeah. And I think that that is something that is absolutely still an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you're allowed to pay people with intellectual disabilities significantly less than minimum wage, <sighs> even though do, do those people need, you know, fewer uh, goods and services? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of what Keller is responding to is um, similar to the thing that you're saying about um, audiences don't think that a blind actor could be that active. They think that a blind actor should look kind of empty and passive, mm-hmm. not like an actual blind person who is <laughs> active. There's a line between what Keller is saying, like, I really understand all of the things that you understand. I can feel rhythm, so I know what music is. I know what tone of voice is because I can feel people's uh, you know, throats. I... I I know these things and I have an idea of the world that's reliable and I'm not empty. I'm not just in a dream world. All the stuff she's mad about in 1908, she could still be just about equally mad right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's why this book spoke to me so much when I first read it and I keep kind of revisiting it and pulling stuff out. And, and I, and I think you're right. So, so when she talks about, you know, the hand, um, she's also, she waxes quite beautifully about, you know, the worker's hand, you know, and so the usefulness, the relationship between um, our abilities, our perceptions, and labor, and being involved in the world are so intimately connected in in her mind. And I think that is all because as a very young person, she she was a a card-carrying socialist from her early 20s. So she, I think, very much relates her senses and the abilities of her, of her limbs, of her hands, of her thinking self as being intimately connected with social usefulness. You know, I think that's something that's very important to her, that it's both a monetary concern, but it's also about being in the world, you know, about being I think you're exactly right, an active member of the world, you know, because I think that when she's talking about her perceptions, she's also talking about um, her ability to shape and, and change the world, you know, as, yeah, you know, as an active member, I guess. Maybe there's like a line between that and her thoughts on eugenics also that, that she Oof. has this kind of curiosity, <laughs> um, toward pretty much any kind of person that she thinks of as intellectually um, capable. But if that person Mm. is not, then she's like, this life is just not worth living. Yeah. It's a tough thing, right? I mean, it is, it, it, it is hard to have people of another era as, as your role models, because there, there are going to be things that we've progressed right out of, you know, I mean, eugenics is is a tough one and i must say that she was um very much linked with alexander graham bell um alexander graham bell is a fraught personality especially in the world of 
of the deaf community because he basically wanted to eliminate deafness. He is quite a proponent of eugenics. And unfortunately, had a very close relationship with him. So I can't help but think that at least to some extent, her ideas about eugenics. Knowing her other extremely leftist politics, I believe that if she lived in another era. Yeah. I, yeah, um, it is tough. <laughs> I mean, obviously she's part of a community of, of people that had a lot of these thoughts. Um, it's, it's just like when you think about just how original and powerful a lot of her thinking and her writing is in this book, like where she came from, where she ended up, how profoundly she was. It, it, she kind of reminds me of George Orwell in a way hmm. as like a writer who is kind of living the class system in a way that allows a very deep analysis of sort of the flaws of um, both capitalism and its alternatives, really. There's there's something about this this book that reminded me of um, Down and Out in Paris and London. Oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that pull, it's a pulling back of the curtain, right? It's a it's a, a revelation to typical what would you even call this? I guess it's just sort of barely out of uh, Victorian I guess it's still firmly in the Victorian era, but towards the end, right? So those Victorian ideals are being questioned or being um, pushed to their limits by the way that she moves and thinks in the world. Yeah, I, I was thinking as I was reading this, like where did people get the idea that she was going to be so much less than other people in the first place? Because obviously there have always been blind people. There have always been deaf blind people and different societies presumably just have different places for, for people. Um, But why is the society that she lives in one that is assuming that she's going to have so much less personhood? Because oh my goodness, there's like a yes. real focus on utility in yeah. that like industrial era. You know, like the, yeah. that focus on utility and that focus on um, uh, like that kind of post-feudal world that she's living in of industrialization is definitely one that's like this machine is broken. Can it be fixed? Mm. Is it still functional enough to keep around? Um, And I, so I think that in some ways she's writing against that on every level. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough question, right? Because I think there's, there's two sides of this. And one is that she is literally the first deafblind person to graduate from college. Right. So, so there's that. And she's only the second, you know, it's not that long before the very first deafblind person learned language, um, Laura Bridgman, uh, who is still alive when when Helen Keller was was young. Um, so, so education, right, is one thing. The other side of it is that it is a long tradition that I talk about a lot in my book that um, discounts what 
blind people know. Um, and I think it goes probably double for, for, for deafblind people. And, and it goes back even, you know, I start my, my book way back in the days of Homer and how yeah. um, early, you know, critics were saying, well, people who believed that Homer was blind are themselves mentally blind because he saw more than all Greece besides. And so it's a long tradition of discounting what blind people know. So she's fighting a long battle. I mean, even John Milton had critics that basically said he never, you know, wrote anything in intelligent in Paradise Lost about the visible world. Or he never had a really good grasp on the visible world, even when he was sighted, but then they kind of used his blindness against him, you know, of, of saying that he was so intellectual that he wasn't actually seeing the world, which I kind of take issue with a lot. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but um, so it's a long tradition, I guess that's the thing. And so, and it's even, it, again, I think it goes double for deaf blind. It's just impossible for people to believe that she can have the intelligence that they do. And I tell you what, it comes right up to this very day, right with this whole truther movement, you know, that people basically deny her existence. I mean, they deny that she was what she what she was. And it's so it's so ingrained. And I think that's really the most powerful part of what she's talking about is that is saying, I exist, right? She even quotes Descartes and she's like, I think therefore I am, you know, I exist. And, and that part of the argument, I think is something that is so painfully still with us, right? It's like, Disabled people generally, I think we can say, um, are still fighting this fight to say, hey, I exist. I have original thoughts. You know, I perceive the world differently, but no lesser. You know, it's yeah. it's actually painful how much it hasn't changed since 1908. Yeah, yeah. The Just every facet of what she's, of every fight she's fighting is still so much with us. Yeah. And um, uh, sorry, I'm just forgetting there was something I was going to say about that. <laughs> um, and um, this was something that, um, that that we were actually just talking about before I hit record. The that we now have sort of neurological reports to show us <laughs> what she's saying in more literary language. The the brain doesn't care where it gets the information that's right once it gathers information it will store it as perception of the world um whether that information came from the sense of smell or sight or touch or anything she's listing yeah Um, yeah i mean i I remember when i started reading david eagleman it was like he was saying exactly that right that the the brain the brain doesn't care where the information is coming from. You you just said this so beautifully. So I don't know if I, why I'm repeating it, but I think <laughs> I it's useful. <laughs> I think it's useful to um to to remember that right that um that the brain. I, I mean, I think that the best example of this is you know um, the fact that our retinal images are upside down and reversed, right? And so for a yeah. long time, that really troubled philosophers um, that they didn't understand how, how this was possible. Like, how does the brain like unscramble that upside down left, left right reversal of, of the retinal image? And it was fairly early on that people realized, scientists realized, well, 
this has nothing to do with right or left. This is all about electrical impulses. You know, we don't have a, like our mind's eye is very much a metaphor. It's not the way the brain works. You know, the brain stores information just like Helen Keller is talking about. So I think you're exactly right that like, you know, neuroscience is kind of backing up her claims uh, rather ferociously, actually. Yeah. And that, that she doesn't even necessarily perceive the world all that differently. Yeah, she has like, you know, she has, you know, superpowers in some way, and then deficits in some other way. It's very much that she is a person in the world, very much like other people in the world. And the difference between something that is not considered a mark of disability, that has any kind of social meaning, like needing to wear glasses, or needing to use a telescope to look at the stars. Uh that the accommodations that she needs to move freely through society, that those are just a social construction that makes one of these things seem like it has all this meaning and wearing glasses is just like some people wear glasses. Other people don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that, um, again, those are those critics, right. That, that have their conventional ideas of what it is, to be what it is to be a person, just like you say. And I, I think you're exactly right that like her personhood is at stake in this book. And maybe that's why I find it so moving. Uh, interesting to note, I was just reading um, Dorothy Herman's biography, just kind of reminding myself about the circumstance of her writing this book. And it turns out that that Helen Keller really enjoyed writing this book. It was one of like her her favorite moments of writing because apparently she she would have rather been out like chatting with people and running around the fields than writing, you know, it just so happens that that was kind of the career that was set out for her, um, at least in the beginning. Um, But apparently she really enjoyed writing this book. And, and maybe that's part of what, what we're, we're reading as well is that joy of expressing, she says, like, everything that was, everything that was going on in my mind, I, I was able to kind of speak to in this book. So maybe that's why it's, it it feels so moving in so many ways. I think you're right. I think it does have, it's like, there is that sense of defensiveness or um, like anger at the people who are placing these kind of bizarro limitations on their conception of what her life must be. But there's also a real joy of expression. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it is a, it's a joyful book. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so many moments that are just so, so lovely. I, there's like one funny moment, um, you know, she, when she's talking about hands and how, how, how much she can read a person by their hands. And uh, I guess there was some guy who had a collection. This was kind of all the rage back then, right, is collecting things. So uh, one of her friends, you know, was collecting plaster cast molds of people's hands. And she said, you know, I always recognize a hand, but in this collection of sort of dead things, you know, these plaster moldings, I didn't recognize a single hand, not even my own. (laughs) Uh, she also, um, not her and, oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 Do it. Do it. I okay. we found it at the same time. <laughs> oh, the eye of man hath not heard the ear of man hath not seen man's hand is not able to taste his tongue to conceive nor his heart to report what my dream was. 
Um, yeah. And that's the last line, right? That's the last line of, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's where she leaves it. Yeah. And then she has a poem that, that follows uh, called A Chant of Darkness. But, but officially that ends the world I live in. Um, I thought it was such a perfect and um, really beautiful summation of how she's describing uh, the relationship between the senses and then actual human perception. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what she draws so much attention to is the poetic qualities that we extol so often um, in in writing and our culture and language is something that is somehow in her dismissed or even ridiculed, um, and yet it's something that if in the in the mouth of in the pen in the plays of Shakespeare is revered. You know, this kind of mixing of the senses, the the synesthesia of of poetry of language, and yet for her to to draw upon kind of a synesthetic ideology of perception is yeah discounted and and so i think that's why yeah ending with a line from shakespeare to kind of make that point you know that like we we revere this mixing of the senses these analogies in our culture so why not take an interest when i say it you know yeah yeah and now neurology has completely caught up with her That's our episode on Keller's The World I Live In. Thank you so much to Leona Good and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Uh, we love hearing from our listeners, so please write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you would rate and review. <laughs> Thank you, and goodbye till next week. <laughs>